Welcome to Wadcast. I'm Charlene Gianetti, editor of Women Around Town. Well, we're hearing a lot about immigrants these days, and Jeff Jaffe is certainly someone who came to the U.S. in search of a better life. Jeff grew up in South Africa during the apartheid era and was no stranger to the social injustice happening all around him. At age 20, he left South Africa after his military service ended with only $100 in his pocket. Fast forward to 1997, when he opened Pop International Galleries on the Bowery in New York City. He remembers selling his first major painting, a Keith Haring, for $150,000. Today, that painting would easily fetch five or six million. Jeff earned an MFA in sculpture from the prestigious Cranbrook Academy of Art near Detroit. He has a unique point of view as an artist himself and a gallery owner. To this day, he has never signed formal written agreements with the artists he represents. Everything is done with a handshake. Wow. So I'm excited to find out more about Jeff, his journey from South Africa to New York, and Pop International Galleries. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you so much for joining us today. My absolute pleasure. Happy to be here. What are your memories of growing up in South Africa? Oh, boy. <laughs> What's um, Well, it's a very mixed bag um, for somebody like me who became quite uh, aware of what was going on in South Africa as a very young, young boy. Um, but for a white person growing up in South Africa in the 60s and 70s and really almost into the 80s, um, life was amazing. I went to beautiful schools, we had amazing teachers, the education was remarkable, uh, we lived in a lovely house, we had a pool, um, but then again, just about every white person had that kind of experience. The, the, the notion of white privilege had its roots very, very early in South Africa. So I have those memories of lovely teachers and a wonderful, beautiful, beautiful country, um, and then at the same time, um, dealing with and coming into contact with black South Africans on a on a regular basis. We had people working for us. Everyone had had servants. Um, there were maids and gardeners, um, and there were servants' quarters at the back of the house where 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 servants lived. And um, so it was a very complicated thing for some people like me and others just sort of lived through it and enjoyed their lives and were not active in any way, shape or form. Um, but I do remember as a very young boy, uh, we would have to put us, because we had school uniforms, we would have to put our shoes in the kitchen the night before uh, and they would be polished <laughs> by the... Um, the man who worked at our house. And I decided one night that I was not going to have anybody polish my shoes and that I would polish them myself. And I got into a lot of trouble um, with my mom and dad about it. Hmm. Um, just because it, it was, they, they tried to play the, the, I was being disrespectful of these people's jobs and so on and so forth. And, and my argument was, but I, I don't need a servant. I can polish my own shoes and I can make my own bed and I can do those kinds of things. And it sort of was the start of a, a, a larger odyssey for me, really, about becoming aware of what apartheid South Africa really was. 
So I guess it's no surprise then that you struggled when you were in the military and were brought up on it, multiple charges. Can you explain what was, happened? Sure. It was the most difficult time of my life, actually, uh, in, in South Africa. Um, every, every young boy finished high school, uh, who finished high school was, was drafted into the military. And we had no choice. And that particular year that I was that I was drafted um, uh, was a two-year conscription. It used to be twelve months or eighteen, and then eighteen months, and then they bumped it up to two years. And um, it, it was just one of those things whereby uh, you just knew living there. The only way you could not do it was to either leave the country or. Beca- go to medical school or, or law school, or, or or become an accountant, and that would defer your your conscription. Um, but we all had to go, um, and so off I went. I was actually originally drafted into the navy, and they booted a bunch of us out of the navy for various reasons. They'd over conscripted the navy, and I landed up uh, in a battalion called the Special Services Battalion, which was a tank unit. Um, and uh, it was very difficult. It was physical. It was horrible. Um, you know, every trick in the book that <laughs> many of us could apply to sort of not go and be a part of the actual war on the border, what they, you know, fighting what they call the... You know, the Red Scourge, the Communists, it was kind of funny, really, when you think about it. Um, but there were a few of us who absolutely avoided everything that we could. Um, where I did my basic training or boot camp um, in, in the Special Service Battalion. And then I got sent to various other units in between and found myself eventually, uh, ironically, working for a the military newspaper, similar to what you would call Stars, Stars and Stripes here. Mm-hmm. They had a military magazine there. And I was an artist and I did cartoons for them and I, you know, I wrote articles on military vehicles and, you know, and then there were moments when my politics just couldn't sort of, uh, I couldn't um, hold back. And I remember one day being sent out on a job and I came back um, after, actually in some cases, uh, when I think back about it, there were various um, things that happened around this event. I had been writing articles and making cartoons that were very um, um, politically incorrect at the time. And there was a major who was in one of the senior offices in, in this who would call me aside and he'd say, he would say, I was a corporal at the time, he'd say, Corporal Jeffy, uh, you really should tone things down around here. You're, this is not appropriate stuff. This is not, you're, you're going to get into trouble. And I think that um, they were sort of really, some of the other officers were starting to really look at me more closely. And we went out on this job, and uh, we actually got lost. It was somewhere uh, we drove around for a really long time. And um, we came back um, eventually the next day, and I was brought up on charges um, for stealing a military vehicle 
um, and um, for writing and making articles that were um, counter to the government's view of the world. Hmm. And I was held. Um, it was a very, I mean, I was 19 years, I was 18 years old. I mean, hmm. it was just ridiculous, you know. Um, and I remember calling my dad to say, you know, I, I've been, I, I, I can't leave the office right now. I'm, I'm, I've been arrested essentially and he said to me well you must have done something to deserve it and I went like oh my god I am completely on my own here and uh, it was a really really tough time and um, so I started to dig around as to how I could survive this and it turned out that as a what they called a national serviceman which is what I was a conscriptee um if they decided to court-martial me, which is really what they wanted to do, I was entitled to get a, a private lawyer, a civilian lawyer, uh, as opposed to a military one. And so after literally a week or 10 days um, of being sort of held and not being able to move around, uh, these charges, um, I told them that if they want to bring the charges uh, to the court-martial, I was brought up on summary charges, what they called it. It was a summary trial, and they convicted me at that point summarily without a uh, a, a representation, legal representation, nothing. It was a really, really scary thing for an 18-year-old kid to go through. Yeah, horrible, just terrible. Wow. And, yeah... And but I, I'm a survivor, and I said, okay, I would prefer to go to be court-martialed. And I remember when I said this to the, the head of this unit, he almost fell out of his chair, and he said, why would you want to do that? I said, because you're either going to send me to, a, to jail for a long time, or you're going to send me up to the border to, to fight this war that South Africa was fighting. And I don't want either. And as a as a court martial, I, I I have a lawyer who said he will represent me. He's a civilian lawyer. And I remember this 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 um, he was the the rank was what they called commandant. And he threw his papers up from the desk and he said, "Get out of my office." Um, and I never want to see you again. And that sort of at that point freed me up to to do other things, hopefully, within in the military structure that um, um, kind of let me out of that system. And so I began to be independently looking for other units to go to. <laughs> it was just ridiculous. It was just ridiculous. You know, conscriptee would never do that. At any rate, I uh, knew somebody who was a film director, TV and film director, um, and through his mom, uh, she worked at a, at a military museum and they needed somebody who was an artist to be able to do backdrops and all kinds of things and displays. And um, so I kind of got my first gallery sort of experience there. Um, they loved me, they treated me well, um, but it was still a military environment that, uh, you know, I had to report for duty every day. I was under strict supervision. Um, it was pretty rough, um, but I finished my military experience there, and seven days, ten days later, 
uh, I was out of the country and gone. Um, I just. And when you left, I, you were you were only twenty years old. Is that right? When you twenty were, years old. Twenty years old. Exactly. And what was your yeah. first stop? With a hundred dollars in your pocket, I understand. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, actually, my my story is a little mm-hmm. more complex than that. I I left and I went to live in Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's the only place I could go and live. And uh, I went to study um, sculpture, actually, at the University of Haifa. And I met uh, an American professor there who felt that my abilities in art and sculpture and so on and so forth were not being really addressed properly and that I should go and study in the United States. And um, I, again, completely alone, um, I applied, believe it or not, to Cornell University and got accepted. And um, they had a scholarship for me, everything was set up, and um, I had a $100 bill, and off I came to the United States. Um, I had enough money to pay for plane ticket, and um, off I came on a student visa to go to Cornell. And um, when I got there, uh, they pretty much told me that they had lost my high school certificate and that my scholarship um, has, had been held back and that I, I could only do this a year from then. And I didn't know what to do. And it was a terrible, terrible time. And I had no support from my family. Um, but I did remember that the University of Haifa had a, uh, a sister relationship with um, Montclair State College at the time in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And um, I ran with my student visa and I met um, uh, the Dean of Foreign Students there, the most wonderful man, his name was Dean Harris. And when I first met him, it was rather tricky for me because I was this little white boy from Johannesburg and there was this towering black man who sort of scared the bajillicas out of me. Mm-hmm. And But he drew me and he literally threw his arms around me and hugged me and told me it was going to be okay. And um, he said to me, we want you here. Um, we will make it possible for you. Uh, your tuition will get you scholarships. We'll help you pay in-state tuition. I mean, he, he was, Dean Harris was... My first hero in my life, absolute hero. And um, so I finished my undergraduate work um, at uh, Montclair. But the 100 bucks story is a funny one because I really did come to this country to go to university with a $100 bill. And I remember at the time going, I I, I had a girlfriend here, so I had a place to stay in between, you know, before school started. And I remember taking this $100 bill to what was a chemical bank at the time, which doesn't exist anymore, mm-hmm. and um, taking this $100 bill and going in and breaking it. And um, the teller asked me how much, how I wanted the $100 bill. And I said, you know, um, fives and singles. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. it just seemed, <laughs> I was a kid, and it just seemed to me like, you know, I knew that breaking a $100 bill was going to be the end of that money in no time at all. Um, But by just sort of sheer will and desire and commitment to being an artist and the help of people like Dean Harris at Montclair, he was, as I say, the the most wonderful human being. Um, 
and we we stayed in touch for years afterwards. Um, so you went and from, time, from Mount Clare to Cranbrook Academy, and then so uh, yeah, at Mount Clare, the, the head of the sculpture department was a tremendous teacher uh, who had a great influence on me. And he called me aside one day and he said, "Do you, do you know what you're planning to do when you're finished here?" And I said, "Well, you know, I I'm just a student here. I only have a student visa." Um, uh, I'm probably just, you know, going to have to either go back to Israel or South Africa. And he said, no, 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 no. You, you need to go to Cranbrook. You need to go to the Cranbrook Art Academy. And I went, Cranbrook? Are you kidding me? I mean, the most exclusive, truly one of the most exclusive graduate schools in the world. How was I ever going to be accepted there? And, um, and I remember one winter, two, three of us uh, drove, drove out to Michigan to go and see it. And uh, I met the head of the department there, and he said there are two slots available. There are only 150 students at the academy and 15 people in the sculpture department, and there were two mid-year slots. And since I was finishing mid-year, just by the nature of my timing, um, I said, um, well, I'd love to apply. And he said, well, I think you should. And I said, I don't know how I'm going to pay for it. so he said, we'll work on that one, too. I mean, people were very, very, very kind to me. And um, at any rate, I got accepted to Cranbrook. Um, the head of the sculpture department and I became good friends. And um, he gave me on-campus work, um, which allowed me to get through the year, uh, first year. Um, I got a big scholarship from a very kind person who had heard about my plight and I was able to get through my second year. And then the big question was, what was I gonna do? You know, was I gonna go back to wherever I came from or stay in the US? And I did, as I say, have a girlfriend in the US and she said, you've gotta come back to New York and we're going to sort of work on trying to get you, uh, you know, your green card. And and I came back to New York City and um, I met somebody through who my girlfriend who actually became my wife <laughs> down the line. And he had a wonderful business and said, we need, to, uh, we need somebody who has experience with bronze casting and work with physical materials like concrete and wood and steel. Um, and I hear that you can do all this. And it was a company that salvaged architectural artifacts. And I said, yes, that's like right up my alley. So he said, okay, I'm willing to sponsor you. Um, um, And I'm willing to pay for your legal fees to help you get your green card. It it took a long time and um, they did sponsor me. I worked my butt off to sort of uh, earn my green card and work for him and I'm still friendly with that that, that gentleman. He was he came to visit me in the gallery a couple of weeks ago. It was uh, wonderful. Um, and uh, through you know just my hard work and whatever it was, uh, my green card. I actually said to my wife that I would not marry her until I got my green card. I never ever wanted her to think that I married her for a green card. (laughs) (laughs) So Jeff, let's let's go back. Where did that love of art come in? Because you were obviously doing it at a very young age. 
three years old. I won my first art competition when I was three years old. I knew that I was always going to somehow be inextricably connected to art in one form or another. If you would have asked me if I was ever going to own an art gallery, not in a million years would I have ever thought that would be the case. But um, I was, I always used to draw when I was a child. I did everybody's drawings for their school projects for them. The teachers used to call me and have me do the diagrams on the blackboards and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I knew very, as a very, very young person that um, I was going to go to art school in some way, shape or form. And how did the drawing uh, morph into an interest in sculpture? Well, that sort of turned, uh, it came about when I actually went to university and, you know, when I, I didn't know what I was going to really um, focus on and what, what my major would be in the art department. And so we had to, we were, you know, required to take a painting class and a drawing class and a sculpture class and design class and all those sort of things. And I had an immediate affinity to the notion of sculpture for some reason. I, I discovered that I think three-dimensionally, I see the world in a sort of different way. Um, and again, I, I, it was, there was a teacher there who had a profound effect on me. And I realized that I absolutely loved working with materials. I loved the idea of welding and bronze casting and carving and um, clay and just sort of really getting my hands dirty. Um, and um, so I, you know, I thought I was always going to be a painter. Um, uh, that's sort of where it was headed. Uh, but I, I discovered uh, during that first year of, of university that sculpture was it for me. And uh, so and on it went. Um, you know, I would still, we were still required to, to take drawing classes and that kind of stuff. Um, but um, sculpture sort of... Uh, found me. I didn't find sculpture. It was a pretty amazing thing. Now, you opened and Pop Galleries in 1997? That's correct. And that's why, correct. Why, the, why the Bowery? Why that location? Well, we didn't open originally on the Bowery. Okay. Um, uh, I had been, uh, I had my green card at that point. Uh, I actually become a citizen by then. And I had been, um, Working in other galleries, I, I was, uh, I found um, a job, my very first gallery job was on West Broadway, actually, in Soho, uh, working for a big gallery organization, and I worked for them for a number of years. Um, they trained me just amazingly well in the gallery world. And then I got recruited by another gallery organization to become the director of that, of that gallery. And um, it, it was a publicly held corporation, and um, they had branches of galleries around the country, and the only two that were really profitable were, were the one that I was running in New York, and the other one was in Hawaii. Mm. And um, they were going under. And at that time, um, my boss at the time, uh, I looked at him one day and I said to him, what are we going to do when this is over? And he said, I don't know. What are we going to do? And I said, well, why don't we open our own? And he looked at me and he said, you serious? I said, yeah. And he said, why not? And so mm -hmm. we opened Pop, 
in my, it was really on a whim, just like that. I mean, I had talk about scraping money together. I had a big borrow and steal. I mean, it was just a, one of those, you know, my in-laws, I was married at that point. I, I, I had already had my first child. Um, we, my in-laws kicked in. I had some savings. I mean, it was, it was quite a big deal to come up with the, the dough that I had to come up with. But we opened the Pop Gallery uh, in 1997 um, on West Broadway. And we were there for almost 20 years, 18 years, really. And um, the move to the Bowery was a significant thing. It had obviously to do with um, uh, the escalating rents on West Broadway. Um, there was a, a law uh, that commercial tenants paid commercial real estate tax every year, and it would go up every year exponentially. Um, and by the time um, I was looking to move, the commercial real estate tax that year was $158,000 just for that year. And I, it, it was like a wake-up call. Mm. And so we started to look around um, for other locations. I bought my business partner out eight years or nine years before, before that. Um, and um, we found this lovely spot on the Bowery. Uh, at the junction of Spring Street, which is amazing because you can see us from all the way down Spring Street. Uh, knowing that a huge five-star hotel was going to open next door, right next door to us, and Vandal Restaurant, up, uh, two doors down, up rather, uh, one of the most popular restaurants filled with art and so on and so forth. We just It was the right location for us. And so two and a half years ago, we moved from West Broadway to, to the Bowery. So, Jeff, uh, talk about that transition. When did you decide you were going to become a gallery owner or, you know, someone who's <laughs> trying to represent other artists rather than, you know, concentrating full-time on your own work? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, I, I um, when I came uh, out of grad school um, and went to uh, work for this company that sponsored me and did all my green card stuff, I... I wrote a proposal to the Pollock Krasner Foundation. I don't know if you've heard about it at all, but Jackson Pollock um, had a wife named Lee Krasner, and uh, when, they were, when they both passed away, a big foundation was set up called the Pollock Krasner Foundation, and it was set up to help artists um, in any way, shape, or form that had to do with the production and continuation of producing artwork. And so I wrote a uh, proposal to open a studio in New York uh, for me to go in and you know make my make my sculpture and do the kinds of things that I did. And I was I blown away once again. Um, I received a, a lovely grant from them, and I was able to open a studio in Brooklyn, actually in Dumbo, before Dumbo became what Dumbo is today. Mm. Uh, it was a long time ago, and I was there for many, many years. But it and worked and had shows and, you know, sold bits and pieces of art and that kind of stuff. But I realized as a dad, as a new dad, um, I wasn't somehow prepared by my art school experience to sort of go out there and just become an artist and support my family. Mm -hmm. And it was 
that decision, being a, a father and committed to being a father, that um, sort of pushed me into the notion of thinking, well, you know what, um, you had a great experience with this architectural company. Uh, you knew you could, I knew I could sell. Um, uh, I wanted to be in the art world, um, and I saw a job advertised, and they brought me in, and um, I thought this would be worth something, you know, and I, my first year that I made more money than I ever imagined possible, um, I think mean it was 50 or $60,000, it was ridiculous. Um, and um, I stayed working, you know, in the gallery business really since then, mm -hmm. found a niche. I was trained very well by various people. I still do business with some of the people uh, from the very first gallery I ever worked in, mm -hmm. um, which, which is no longer in business, but the people... Um, my first boss, totally ironic. Um, and, uh, and then sort of the transition from working for other people, being trained, becoming a director of a gallery, sort of, sort of coming up through the ranks. Um, and then this notion of our company, this, uh, publicly held company that I was working for going out, I had to either decide, well, I'll just go work in another gallery or there was an opportunity to open pop. And it was a pretty, I remember struggling with the idea, but it, in the end it was a rather quick decision and uh, we opened pop and we sort of changed the, the paradigm a little bit, but the nature of the gallery and how we do things and how we demystify, you know, the notion of well, buying tell, art. Yeah, the demystification of buying art. Tell us a little bit about about how you do that? So, you know, most people I discovered um, loved going into galleries, but they hated the galleries. Um, they were snooty. They were big white-walled sort of vaulted places where somebody sat behind a high desk where you could just see their eyebrows and nobody would talk to you. And if, uh, they'd, you know, they'd peer up over the top of the counter and if you weren't um, wearing, you know, fancy clothes and carrying a Gucci bag or wearing a gold watch, they wouldn't talk to you. And um, one of the things I learned very quickly was that I was going to do something completely, completely different. And what I did that was different was to sort of tone it down. Yes, with the White Wolf Gallery, but we had low front desks. Anyone who walks into the gallery gets a big hello and a welcome and a hi and how's it going? Oh, yeah. You know, we, we engage. Mm -hmm. And we, we're, we're, we become engaged with the people uh, who walk in here on a level that sort of um, breaks down the barriers. Like, anyone can buy a piece of art, truly. In my gallery, anyone can buy a piece of art. Someone who's never bought a piece of art before or some major collector who, you know, spends millions of dollars can buy art from us. And and the way we, we did it was to sort of soften that whole thing. There's always music playing when you come in. It's fun music. I have a rule here at the gallery. Whoever opens has the choice of the music for the day. Um, we don't, I, I don't wear a suit and tie. In fact, I'm looking at what I'm wearing now. I'm wearing jeans and, you know, a, a loose shirt and no tie and, um, uh, and the doors open and uh, there's music playing and there's beautiful art on the wall and people are sort of invited to come in. So that breaks down a lot of barriers initially. 
The second thing that we do is we, we, quali- we, we qualify people to see really where they are and what level they are. You know, I always say somebody um, might be a mailroom clerk, but maybe they have a trust fund. <laughs> you know, you never know. Right. And so by, by chatting with people and sort of really getting to know people a little bit, you open them up. And um, we can, like one of the other things that we'll do is to someone who's never bought a piece of art in their life before, we offer a program. You could buy a piece of art from the pop gallery, you know, over 12 months interest free, and you get the artwork immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we do things that sort of break down the idea of every piece of art is a great investment. In fact, I have a rule at the gallery not to sell art on the basis of investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I want people to buy art that they love. I want people to have an experience that when they come in here, they just saw a piece of art on the wall and they fell in love with it and we facilitated that and they walk home or we ship it to them and uh, and, and they love it. And, and I always tell the story about my first couple of pieces of art and how they still hang in, in our house, you know, the ones that I bought. And, and I remember uh, a very funny story. A, a couple of years ago, my daughter was home from college and my second child um, and, and her brother, they were sitting having breakfast and um, I was walking down the hall towards the kitchen where they were sitting and I heard my daughter say to her brother, she said, well, okay then, if, if you're going to get that Andy Warhol uh, Brooklyn Bridge, then there's a key tearing over here and that other small piece on the other side of the wall, that should come to me, don't you think? <laughs> that would be fair. <laughs> and I, I, I walked in and I said, what, what are, you, are, are you guys like killing me off? And they high-fived each other and they said, hey, Dad, but we'll get you on that one. Um, so we, it's a big laugh in our family about, you know. But my kids have grown up with art, and they, you know, they've started to collect their own, and oh, they, yeah. they love. Interesting. Yeah. So when you mentioned Keith Haring, that was one of the first paintings that you saw of one of his, isn't that right? That's true. That's absolutely true. Um, a major painting, actually, when we first opened Pop, um, we, had the, we had access to a truly remarkable painting. And um, it, it was confined to us. We put it on the wall, and some German collectors sort of happened to come in the gallery. It was within the first few weeks of our being open. And this beautiful painting was on the wall, and um, it was $150,000 at that time. And um, I remember my former business partner really struggling with the client. How are they going to make this happen? And he just came to me and said, I, 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 I can't. I don't know what to do. Can you help? Can you step in? And I got chatting with um, um, these people. I actually speak a bunch of languages, and so I could speak a little bit of German to them. And um, we hit it off, and I said to them, I tell you what, why don't you make three payments? And my old ex-business partner looked at me, and he said, Duh, you know, <laughs> and so these folks said, okay, you have a deal, and so they gave us a deposit, and they wired the balance over a period of time, and it actually set the business in motion. It, it was a big enough chunk of change, ultimately, to really sustain the business down the line for a while, and showed us that we could do what we knew we could do. It certainly showed me I knew what to do, and um, 
that it was fun and that we could help people acquire major pieces of art on various levels. And that painting today is a multi-million dollar painting. I can imagine. Uh, yes. Truly, truly. Multi-million dollar Yeah. Yeah. So how do you decide and, which artists that you are going to represent in the gallery? So um, the, the concept of pop and pop international was the idea of being able to find art, pop art, you know, which would have been Andy Warhol and Roy Lichtenstein mm -hmm. and Keith Haring and people like that, uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat eventually, um, who were the sort of newer pop sort of figures on the scene, not the traditional pop art movement. Um, we found a niche. There hadn't been a gallery really that um, had focused on this part of the art world in a very, very um, solid way. And so we began to do that. And as we began to do that, it became really evident that popular culture was a larger aspect of what it was that we needed to focus on. And as the years have gone by, um, I've been lucky enough to sort of find artists and have relationships with artists that have lost really, really, I mean, the very first artist that we put into pop um, tw 21 years ago, we still represent. I mean, it's a, an incredible you know, relationship. Um, at any rate, um, so it sort of, del we delved into this idea of pop culture. And uh, so, yes, we have Andy Warhol's and Keith Haring's and Basquiat's and whatnot available. Uh, there's a, you know, a 1.2 million dollar painting on the, yeah, you know, in in my private room here at the gallery, and then there are three or four hundred dollar items available as well for people. So I do to sort of like, as we, we talked a little bit about earlier about demystifying what you know art was, um, to sort of also give younger artists opportunities, and I that resonates for me given the fact that you know I. I went to art school and understand right. what all, all of that. I sort of sit, you know, on both sides of the fence in some ways, which is a lot different from other art dealers. Um, but the idea in the end sort of blossomed, and I have looked for artists that really address the nature of popular culture. So we represent street artists and graffiti artists like uh, You Are New York and Sen2 and Dom Pattinson from England. Um, and... Um, Pamela Castro from Brazil, she's pretty incredible. Then we move into things like Tom Everhart, who was Charles Schultz, the Peanuts creator's close friend. They had a father-son relationship, and he worked for him, and he does a whole body of work based on Peanuts characters mm. uh, in a very expressive mode. We deal with um, photography, rock and roll photography. Um, we we deal with um, the, um, uh, the the artwork of a Danish artist who uses the Tintin character that that many people know um, uh, and and love. I was I grew up on Tintin mm -hmm. books. Uh, we represent the artwork of Dr. Seuss um, exclusively. Uh, so, so the idea of, you know, from Andy Wall and Keith Haring and Roy Lichtenstein and Jean-Michel Basquiat to someone like Dr. Seuss um, is a very broad spectrum. Yeah, I'm um, sure. So, um, yeah, and we, we, we just signed uh, a couple, uh, a married couple from Australia this week uh, mm -hmm. to have them be represented here. So, you know, 
pop international. So, you know, we have Australia, we have Brazil, we have uh, Denmark, uh, England, South yeah. Africa. A couple, we actually have a couple of South African artists as well. It's kind of fun. So it, it, I understand that you don't always sign formal written agreements. Is that true, that you operate on handshakes? How does that work out? Are you ever worried about, you know, agreements getting... Uh, confusing that people don't understand what they're signing on for? So 90, 99% of the artists and the relationships that I've had have been based on a handshake. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been three or four people over the 21 years that, you know, their true colors sh- shine through and we, we just, you know, we go separate ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, for example, recently there was an artist who um, we were doing extremely well with, no signed agreement whatsoever, and he came to me and he said, um, I, I'm taking my art out of the gallery, I, I have to go somewhere else. I said, okay, uh, you know, there's no agreement here forcing you to stay. And six weeks later, he called me up and he said, uh, Jeff, could, could I see you? And I said, sure. And he came by and he said, you know, I, I want to come back to pop. And, you know, everyone I talk to, including my wife and everybody, <laughs> they say, go back to pop. <laughs> will you? And he goes, will you take me back, pop? And I said, of course I will. <laughs> and, you know, so those kinds of relationships are, are really, really important for me. There are two young guys who I, I my favorite, favorite, favorite story of all, um, uh, a client um, called me one day, a very, very good client, and he said, Jeff, um, there are two uh, street artists who live and work in Brooklyn, in Bushwick. Um, would you be willing to go over and visit them and look at their studio? I think their work is really good. And I said, sure, Mike, not, not a problem. And um, <clears throat> so I remember driving off to Bushwick and arriving at this sort of... Um, it was more of an apartment building and it was a studio and I sort of walked up the stairs and they were waiting for me. And um, on the one table they had um, Dunkin' Donuts and coffee and on the other they had a big bottle of Hennessy. <laughs> they didn't know who they were dealing with, you know. And I said, I'll, I'll have the, uh, I'm driving, I'll, I'll have the, the donuts and coffee, thank you very much. And um, I spent, you know, a good hour with them walking around looking at the art knowing very well at that moment that they were perfect for us. And um, one of the guys, it was a duo, they worked together. And one of the guys said to me, so Jeff, how do do you know Mike? And I said, oh, Mike's a good client to the gallery. And he he said, do you know what he does? And I sort of took a deep breath actually. And I thought, oh my gosh, these guys don't know what Mike does. And this is, should I out Mike? And I took a deep breath, as I said, and um, I looked at the, the guys. Uh, they go by the name of UR New York, letter U, letter R New York. Um, and I said, and one of them's name is Mike as well. And I said, Mike, well, um, you know those 37 indictments that you have against you and um, the five years probation that you guys are on? And uh, they almost fainted. I said, well, Mike, who introduced me to you, he's the undercover cop who arrested you for vandalism. (laughs) (laughs) 
then there was there was a moment, and then they started hooting and hollering and jumping up and down, and oh my gosh, oh my God, we knew he was a cop, Baba. Yeah, they knew he was a cop. Um, and but Mike had never told them who he really was, but had started collecting their art because he loved their art, and um, he introduced me to them. And I said, okay, so here's the deal: I'm willing to put you in the gallery, like on the spot. I could tell them this, but uh, here are the conditions: Mike and I, the cop will do a lot to, uh, we'll write letters, I know a judge, we'll do things, you know, to get your indictments dismissed and probation uh, either reduced or, 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 or removed on condition that if we put you in the pop gallery, um, you'll start to do things in the community. We'll start to work with children, we'll go to community centers and schools and housing centers and the whole thing. And to tell kids and help people understand that they can be who they are. And then they went, oh my gosh, we are, we're called You Are New York, be who you are. And so we trademarked that be who you are thing. And now eight, nine years later, we still have this wonderful relationship and we, they go to schools around the country, around the world, they deal with kids, they deal with people. They've been to Australia, they've been to South Africa. Um, they worked with um, Palestinian and Israeli children, trying to teach them that they're really the same. Um, just wonderful stuff. And our very first project was um, in Chelsea. There's a big housing project on the west side. And we went in there and they painted murals and worked with children. And, and So that this is actually one of my favorite, favorite, favorite stories of all time as an art dealer. And the guys... You know, they know I'm South African, so they, they go to the Lion King and they call me Mufasa, which is <laughs> kind of kind of cute. Um, and, but we have a talk about a father-son relationship. It's just really remarkable. You know, Jeff, uh, it's, it's so interesting because it's sort of, you know, what goes around comes around in a very positive around, yeah. way here because yeah. obviously you were helped by a lot of people throughout your life and your career. And now you were giving back, helping out young people and other artists who are, you know, looking to make it in the art world. It's really an inspiring story. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. I've never really looked at it that way. And as you were saying that, I was getting goosebumps. So as you say in South Africa, goosebumps. Um, honestly, I, 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 I just connect with young people. I look for art that. I think we can do well with, and it's not just about putting art on the wall and selling it and making money. I, I have a different philosophy. You know? mm -hmm. it's, it's about it is about giving back. I mean, you know, we the new the new location for the gallery is right next door to a, a, a men's homeless shelter um, called the Andrews House, and they're very much a part of what we do. You know, we contribute. You know, to them and. The, the guys who live in the shelter walk out there, they watch and protect us and make sure that nobody messes with the gallery. Everybody's got broken windows, we don't, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and so it's part of, I think part of who I am today is very, very much tied to where I come from and Absolutely. what I saw as a child, you know? Absolutely, you know, well, I can't thank you enough for spending this time with me and I hope uh, all of our listeners take time to go down to the Bowery to visit Pop. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate uh, I the time. I... My next time there too. So, and they can go that to your website, lovely. right? To 
yes. see um, all about you and the gallery and the artists that you represent. So I encourage everyone uh, to do that. Thank you. I, I greatly appreciate it. And I've never really had the opportunity to, to really talk about stuff like this. So Well, it's a fascinating a... story. It's real Thank fascinating, you. Jeff. Thank you so much. Again, I'm Charlene Gianetti, editor of Woman Around Town. We've been speaking with Jeff Jaffe, uh, owner of the Pop International Galleries on the Bowery. Thank you again, Jeff. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye.